The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. We, um, we live in fairly uncertain times, and until just by gazing out upon the congregation, there's lots of gaps, which is, I guess, hopefully, there's uh, quite a few people who would normally attend in other times, uh, will be uh, online and having a listen uh, as well, and so joining us, if you like, virtually. So we do live in these uncertain times, and I guess it causes us to begin to wonder what it is 
a certainty, what it is that gives us assurance and hope in what do we place our trust. And this, in part at least, is the kind of question we'll be asking today. Now, the, the story of Jesus meeting with this rich young man and in Luke's Gospel's version, he's called a ruler. Uh, this story is told in three of the four um, Gospels, which might suggest that it's probably a story we really should pay some attention to. In fact, Matthew really invites us to pay attention to it. The, the word that the story begins with is translated in, in the um, ESV, which we use here at our church, uh, which it translates, behold, is actually a Greek term which means pay attention. Give attention to this because it's actually quite important. So Matthew is calling upon those who are reading his version of this story to pay attention. There's something significant here that he wants us to know. So our task this morning is to try to see what's so important that Matthew wants us to give it our attention. Now it's one of those stories that um, we kind of think, yeah, the message is pretty straightforward. Uh, and it's probably the message that we, we see at the surface and probably is the main message, um, is one we would concur with without any real hesitation. It's kind of goes a bit like this. I've seen this meme if you um, have a Facebook account. Like that one? Well then? So when we give it a bit more thought, we might realise that the application to us individually, the application personally, is maybe a bit more challenging, maybe a bit more um, confronting. Maybe we want to add all sorts of nuances to escape the obvious, to get around it, somehow let it not apply to us. So, what do we do with this? Well, let's begin at the beginning. Strange place to start, isn't it? Verse 16. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. We notice straight away a couple of things. Firstly, that he asks about a good deed. What good deed does he need to do to um, get saved? And underpinning a question of that sort uh, is obviously a, a presupposition that salvation is earned by means of good deeds or good works. It, it, it meant that having done good God was then kind of obliged to let him into heaven. It's kind of like an exchange, a transaction. I do good stuff, hey God, you owe me something. He's asking, so what good thing can I do to make God owe me eternal life? Grant it. Grant eternal life to me. Let me get in, if you like. The discussion shows that he has come to Jesus with some measure of unease, a measure of uncertainty. He's really not sure. He needs an answer. Had he done enough? Was there some particular thing he needed to do to put the matter beyond question? I wonder if we might just reflect ourselves for a moment. What kind of question we brought when we first came to know God? When we were wondering, is there anything beyond this life? Is there anything beyond the here and now? Is there anything that gives us meaning and purpose? What question might have we asked? I would gather that the vast majority of people here this morning are Christian people. We've all come to a point where we put our faith in Christ. What question did we ask 
before we went to that step, or took that step. I know for me, as a young person, I was brought up in a, um, a, a home that was not Christian by any stretch. And so the first thing I had to sort of, well, the first question I came with was, is there actually a God? Is God even real? Now, this young man was in a quite different position. He was completely convinced there is a God. He just wanted to know how to please him. For me, I had to be convinced there actually was a God in the first place before I went anywhere else. I needed that question answered. So I wonder if, if we reflect personally, individually, what question did we want answered? And I'm guessing it will be different for each person. And one of the incredible things about that is that God answered our individual question. He met us where we were at. He met us at our point of need. Are we not astounded by that? That God would care for us enough personally as individuals to meet us where we needed to be met. And so for my, in my uh, situation, I gradually came, over a period of months really, came to a point where I thought, I'm going to might be a God. What do I do with that now? It puts me in an awkward position, doesn't it? So I had to make some other kinds of decisions which God led me through. And it's interesting too with this young man that he approaches Jesus, and for some reason he expected that Jesus, this teacher, would be able to tell him stuff, that he could provide the answer, that he could actually identify the good deed that would actually clinch the deal. Now we're not told what um, prompted the young man to approach Jesus, maybe he'd been hanging around uh, quite a bit, maybe heard of his reputation, maybe he was there when Jesus said, let the little children come to me for such as the kingdom of God, or, or the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Maybe you sat there and thought, hang on, hang on, I've been a ruler in the local synagogue for some years. That can't be right. You can't just give stuff like that away. You can't just give eternal life away. You can't just say the kingdom of God, God belongs to the kids when they've done nothing to earn it. Surely. I've got to put this guy right. Or maybe he's been struggling with some uncertainty for years. You know, he's tried to do all the right things and still something's not quite right. And he hears this guy who's coming around making all sorts of claims. He hears of his reputation. He comes in and he says, maybe I can ask him. Hey, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit or to gain eternal life? You know, it's interesting with this stuff about you know, asking kids, is it? Hang on, children have no status in my community. Children have no rights in my community. This makes no sense. So he wants some sort of clarity. He needs to clear something up. And it seems to me then, and no doubt will to you also, that the question posed by this rich young man, elsewhere called the rich young ruler, is laden with a lifetime's personal and religious baggage. He brings himself to it and all that he has learned, all that he has been taught. And how difficult is that? Again, think about ourselves. Think about our own religious journey, for want of a better cliche. That we come along and we bring to God all the stuff we've been taught throughout our entire lives. We come enculturated. We come taught. We come with the stuff that our families have brought us up believing. And somehow, we turn that on its head. And now as I came to seek out whether God even exists, I came obviously as an atheist. Really quite young. And, you know, mid-teens, I kind of knew everything, don't we all? But I came to God as an atheist thinking, hang on, somehow God's going to turn all that around. 
got to flip everything I believe on its head to dismiss it, to change it, to turn it away, to make me reject it. Where were we? What if you've been brought up in a Christian home? What if you've always thought you were a believer? And you possibly were. What does that do for you? It's a question different for you. Think about it. Now at this point, Jesus then takes control of the conversation. And he challenged the young man at a number of points. What he wants to do is sort of um, undermine the young fellow's presuppositions to cause him to question. And he's going to provide an answer. It's not really the answer the young guy wants. Verse 17 says, He said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you were to enter eternal or enter life, keep the commandments. <coughs> so, in typical Jesus style, the young man's question is answered with a question What do you ask me? What is good? What a righteous question. Why ask me when you know? I mean, you're a leader, leader in the local synagogue. You know. There's only one who is good. It's God. So what qualifies me to answer such a question? So he's calling upon the young man, first of all, to question his view of who Jesus is. The young man doesn't come to the right answer, ultimately, but he's calling upon him to say, okay, who do you think I am? Because we asked that question before. And he's giving the young man the opportunity to question what good really means. He, as a young fellow, sees it bound up in something one does. Whereas Jesus sees it as a personal attribute. Whatever God does or whatever God commands is good by virtue of the fact that the one who acts, the one who commands, is himself good. Things are good because they come from God. Actions are good because God does them. They're not good in themselves. They're good because God does it. God says it. Thus the commandments are good because they're issued by God. But Jesus wants the young man to realize that the unease and the uncertainty he senses at his heart has nothing to do with a failure to work out what good deed he needs to perform. Rather, it's the result of his failure to truly know God and the heart of God. He should have known those kinds of things. He should have known that the commandments are simply the markers of those who are the people of God. He'd forgotten that God, or at least failed to pay attention to the fact that God is this faithful, promise-keeping God who loves his people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here is God, faithful, loving, who has drawn a people from other peoples, from amongst other peoples, who rescued them from slavery. And then the, the thing that signifies these people as being um, God's people, a part of the way, is as the way they live. The commandments do that. It's not, I obey and get into heaven. Rather, I'm already chosen. Consequently, I obey. The young fellow's got it upside down. He's got it wrong. 
So Jesus continues to respond to him in terms consistent with the young fellow's thinking and his questioning. But not quite. Doesn't let him off the hook. So he says, keep the commandments. But then he changes the words a little bit in a, in a fairly significant way though. He says, keep the commandments. If you would enter life. So Jesus shifted the, shifted the emphasis from quantity, eternal life, to quality, life. Jesus pointing to a life that befits God, a life lived in keeping with God's character, a life Jesus called in John 10.10 10, an abundant life. There's a life full of meaning and purpose and joy and is eternal. In John 17, he makes it even more clear as he prays that high priestly prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here it is crystal clear that eternal life isn't about pleasing God by means of good deeds, or law-keeping, or being prosperous or having high status, eternal life is knowing God. It's first and foremost relational. So here we see the direction that Jesus is trying to point this young man. Unfortunately, probably a bit like us really, the young fellow is not real quick on the uptake. When Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, what does the young fellow do? He says, um, which ones? He said, you didn't know. Which ones? No, look, seriously, I'm far from sure what is going on here. I'm not sure how I should read this or understand this bit. Is the young man trying to show how good he already is by challenging the teacher to name a commandment so he can say, yeah, look, I kept that one. Aren't I cool? Or is he trying to hope maybe that you know, this guy will offer him like a hierarchy of commands and so he keeps the best ones and the other ones out? What's, you know, again, I'm... I'm not actually sure what's going on in this. Is he actually uh, sort of hoping that you're knowing that he hasn't kept all the commandments and that he's saying, well, by saying which ones, Jesus will name a couple and you'll be okay. So, yeah, kept those ones. Good thing you mentioned that one. What's he going on? Which ones? Whatever the case is, he's got it wrong. And in hearing Jesus' answer, we, there's a further question. Is Jesus actually saying to him, you can actually be um, saved by obeying the commandments. Well, clearly not. Nowhere else in the Bible does it tell us that. What Jesus is doing is he's offering the young man a chance to honestly reflect. And if he were to do so, he would, as all honest people must, conclude that he has fallen short of God's perfect standard. And I guess that's something God always calls us to do, whatever our situation might be and whatever circumstance we find ourselves at the present moment, is to honestly reflect, using the Scriptures as our guide. You know, as that cliche, what would Jesus do? We can always ask that similar sorts of questions. What does the Scripture teach about this? What is right in this situation? If we're called upon, or called to honestly reflect, we'll recognize our shortcomings. We'll recognize our sin. We'll recognize that it's only God who can lead us in the direction that is right. And sometimes we just are uncertain. Sometimes we just don't know. We can only trust. We can only trust. And it's interesting in response to the uh, request 
about which ones, Jesus lists six commandments, not ten. He said, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, love your neighbour as yourself. Now five of those commandments come from the second tablet, you know, the ten commandments and the tablets that Moses got, of the law. And the final commandment that he mentioned is actually not on those tablets at all. It's from um, Leviticus 19.18. It's kind of a summary. What's of particular interest, of course, is that all of them concern our behaviour and attitude towards other people rather than God. It's the first tablet of the law that addresses our relationship with God primarily, and the other is an outworking of that as we relate to people. Now, you can see what Jesus is doing here. It's fairly clear. So if you don't get the stuff about people, they tell you got the God stuff wrong anyway. So I'll challenge you on that one. The one you think you can manage. See, Jesus knows this young man's heart. And notice the way he lists it. He lists honour father and mother last, when in that particular list normally, it's first. What's going on there? It's the first of the commands related to human relationships. And note too that Jesus includes love your neighbour as yourself, even though it's not part of the Ten Commandments. Maybe this points to the fact that maybe the young man actually loves something more than he loves people. Something more than he loves people. If this were the case, then if he were to acknowledge this fact about himself, if his reflection was honest, he could come to the realisation that he's actually not lived a life pleasing to God. And in coming to this realisation, he could be helped to address the problem that he has, this unease, this uncertainty that's brought him to Jesus in the first place. He has to speak the truth to himself. He has to let the Scriptures speak the truth to himself so that he might address the impact of that, the import of that upon his life. So he's had this chance. He's got the opportunity but what does he do with it? He says, oh, mate, I've kept all those. Well, yeah, I'm pretty good. I've kept all those. Dismissive, perhaps? Sure, but still not sure. It's interesting because he says, I've kept all those. But he then goes and asks, well, what do I like? I've kept all those, but what do I still like? Well, clearly, if we knew the Old Testament, he wouldn't have, if he did everything, he wouldn't have liked anything. He knows, he still has this great sense of, unease of uncertainty is not dissipated by the fact that he can make a claim about his own behaviour, his own life. So Jesus then goes and peels away the last layer of the onion, so to speak, and he gets to the, uh, the core, the heart of the problem. He gets to the real cause of the young man's disquiet. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that is, you know, complete, mature and all that, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, Jesus offers him an answer to his problem. But the solution is one that he's not really willing to act upon. The young man loves his possessions more than he loves his neighbour, and by extension, more than he loves God. No doubt his uh, status and his sense of security, even his understanding of what God's blessing looked like were bound up in his wealth. In fact, people of his time, particularly those who are of religious persuasion, the Jews of the time, saw things like prosperity as being the indicator of the blessing of God. You recall Job and his experience with his friends who made similar sort of um, statements and claims. He needed 
was of greater importance to him than God. He needed to remove that which was of greater importance to him than God. Notice too that Jesus doesn't say to him, look, go and sell a bit of your stuff and give that to the poor and just do better next time. He knows the young man's heart. The solution has to be even more radical than that. That means that, that doesn't mean that's the solution for everybody, but it does mean there is a solution that Jesus has for everybody, and it will differ. He couldn't do that. He couldn't sell everything. He went away sorrowful. And again, I wonder what it is for each of us that got in the way of our coming to faith in Christ. Now, I said earlier, for me it was that I had to be convinced that God actually existed. And over a period of time, through various means, I was convinced. I came to believe that God actually existed. I'd never heard of Jesus. I came from that kind of background. I didn't know anything about Jesus or what he'd done. But I came to the point where I believed there must be a God. And then in my head, as a 16-year-old, I said, okay, if there's a God, then God, by virtue of being God, must be worshipped. Because that's what you do with gods, isn't it? And it was only after that that someone mentioned Jesus to me. I met someone and they said, I heard of Jesus. And I heard of him and heard of what he'd done. I became a believer. But I think in a sense, I was a believer before I even heard of Jesus. I'd come to that point where God had cleared away for me. That he worked in me in such a way, I'm convinced, a supernatural way, by the work of the Spirit, where I came to the point that there's a God. Gods must be worshipped. Therefore, if there's a God, I must worship this God. And I did. What it was for you, it be quite different. It's something to, as we reflect, just be thankful for. That God has entered into our lives in such a way, worked in us in such a way, it's supernatural. And brought us to a point where we can believe and follow. Note too the offer that this young man rejected. Jesus had offered him treasure in heaven and then invited him to follow him. He was showing the true way of salvation. And Jesus had declared in John 14, 6 that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the only means to the Father. It wasn't through performing some good deed. And from that point, Jesus uses the man's response to make a kind of a general information. He does so compassionately, as it tells us in um, other, other renditions of the story in Mark and in Luke. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus is having to go at rich people. If so, he's having to go at all of us, as poor as we might think. We are the richest people in the world. So, where do we stand? What's he, what's he really getting at here? Jesus is just having a go at rich people. Is he saying that everyone should give away their material possessions? Is he saying salvation is impossible for those who are rich? Well, I think not. After all, we need only look at a couple of the examples of wealthy people Jesus encountered in the course of his life. Zacchaeus, for example, who through changed heart wanted to pay recompense for all the wrong he had done and return the money manyfold to those whom he had done wrong. Or the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant and the centurion says, you're a man in authority just as I am. You don't need to come. You don't need to go to that servant. You can just order. He acknowledged that and Jesus said, 
He commended him for his faith. Or Nicodemus, who came secretly in the night and asked Jesus you know, these sorts of questions. And, and Jesus said, you must be born again. And then by the time we get to John 19, we find this. It says, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, also a rich guy, who was the disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came, took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. He's a rich guy. And he comes and he gives his wealth to Jesus to embalm the body. Nicodemus had become a believer, it seems. Joseph Arimathea, Arimathea, a believer. Um, Zacchaeus, a believer. The centurion, a believer. All of these are people of wealth and status. It's about attitude, it's about relationship. So when Jesus says it's all but impossible for a rich person to be saved, he's demonstrating that he knows only too well the human heart, generally speaking. He knows that the rich are more likely to rely upon their wealth for their well-being, that they're more likely to have a sense of entitlement and to think of that their material wealth and their status are things they deserve. Their wealth and all their accomplishments becomes their God. Interestingly, Jesus knew about humanity in ways that are actually confirmed, if you like, or supported by modern scientific research. Now, a guy named Paul Piff is a U.S. Um, academic psychologist did a whole bunch of research in this area. If you want to check it out, you can um, go to Paul Piff, P-I-F-F, uh, check out a YouTube uh, talk, a TED talk that he did. really quite fascinating. But he did some observational research, and one of the things he did, you have know all of us know, just by driving around, that people who drive Audis and BMWs always break the law? Well, it's true. Paul Piff found that to be true. He got a whole bunch of his um, students to simply watch cars. And he found that um, people who drove high-status vehicles and expensive vehicles were much, much more likely to break the law than those who drove ordinary cars. Uh, apparently in California, cars have to stop at pedestrian crossings by law, whether, there's a lot, whether there are lights or not. So if a person looks at their crossing, the cars have to stop. He found that um, BM, people who rode cars like Audis and BMWs and high-status vehicles were less likely to yield for pedestrians than those who drove poorer vehicles. In fact, those who drove the poorest of vehicles, in his research, now it's limited, it's obviously he did over you know, hundreds of hours and many people watching, but he found that no, no person who drove the poorest, the cheapest of cars, didn't obey the law. They all stopped for pedestrians. What's going on there? Uh, he did this wonderful little setup where he uh, rigged it because he thought, oh, if this is true, what, what else do we do? So he rigged the game with Monopoly. And he got these, uh, he just got a couple of people at a time, and uh, they played Monopoly. One person was, was advantaged. They had three times the money, and they could use both dice all the time. The other person had the normal amount of money, could only throw the dice one die at a time. Obviously, it was rigged, so the person advantaged would win. As soon as they got in and started playing, they realised that the one person was advantaged, one person wasn't. They continued to play the game anyway, because they were kind of told to. Um, and they all realised straight away that one was advantaged, one wasn't. So what do you do about that? They talked about that for a bit. In each case, did multiple times. And eventually, as the game progressed, the person who was advantaged began to speak in such a way that indicated that they thought they were winning because they were better at playing Monopoly. 
they'd simply forgotten that they were incredibly advantaged and couldn't lose. He took it further. He put in the room with them a jar of lollies, sealed. He can unscrew the top. And he said, these lollies are being kept here away from children in the next room who are being, um, you know, sort of uh, having some work because of developmental issues. So he just keep them here and we'll come and get them later. Found the, those who were advantaged in Monopoly, they don't be rich in real life, but those who were advantaged in the game Monopoly stole the lollies. The other folks didn't. So what do you do with all that? We're simply sort of saying that once you've got stuff and you place your confidence in it, it actually makes you, well, it changes you in some way. You become more, uh, have a greater sense of entitlement. You deserve something. That you have a security that others don't have. And so it's kind of interesting. It's worth looking to listen to the talk just to hear that sort of stuff. So, for the rich young man, when, he, when he's located his security and his status and his wealth, it would be pretty hard to relocate it somewhere else. You know, we all have our idols. But Jesus makes it clear that the idol of wealth is really hard to dislodge. To follow Jesus is hard for anyone, especially because we all prefer to direct our own paths. But for the wealthy, it can be even harder. Because Jesus calls all of us who follow him to a life of self-denial, of humility, of handing over control and direction to another. To him. He calls us to serve, not to be served. Now Philippians 2 sums this whole thing up really cogently. It says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even and even is a really important word there, death on a cross, the most humiliating of death. So here we have the God of the universe who becomes a man, dies on a cross. Sure is it. Yeah, the one who owns all things. Right? The one who is most wealthy, most privileged, who has the highest status, humiliates himself for our sake. See, salvation cannot be achieved by obeying the law or by status or by possessions or by family connections or by doing a good deed. We all fall short of the perfect standard of God. Salvation is hard won. It costs Jesus his life. And because he's won it, he owns it. It therefore can only ever be a gift. It's a gift that God is willing to give. You know, we know Romans 3, that God shows his love for us and that while we're sinners, Christ our us, Romans 5, sorry, and Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it's not um, your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works that anyone could boast. So, upon hearing Jesus' statement, Peter then says, hang on, so what about us? Can anyone be saved? We followed you, what will we have? Jesus is kind. Jesus is encouraging. He doesn't say, hey Pete, get off your high horse, mate. I don't owe you nothing. He doesn't berate Peter. He says something that indicates that their reward will be greater than they can imagine. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So a special place for the original um, apostles. But then he says something that's about us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, 
will receive hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, all those who follow Jesus can look forward to heavenly glory. Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. An incredible thing. And indeed, the first shall be last. Remember Hannah's prayer as she gave over Samuel to the house of God? He says, He, God, raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. In Luke 14, the parable of the wedding feast, he talks about places, he speaks of places of honor. And eventually he says, They don't sit in a place of honor. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, Jesus offers a great exchange. The riches of the world in exchange for the treasures of heaven. Is that possible? Well, no. With God, all things are possible. Think of it. We are adopted into God's family. We're made co-heirs of Christ's kingdom. We're invited to his royal table and elevated as vice-regents over his realm. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for the story that shows us that we can easily have idols, that we can easily put something in the place of God. And we thank you for the call that issues upon our lives, to honest reflection, to a recognition that it is uh, as God whom we follow and that salvation is his gift. And we think it's an incredible encouragement that as we surrender all that we are and all that we have to you, that we inherit eternal life and all that accompanies it. Father, we thank you for the promise that there will be glory in heaven for those who follow Jesus and that we will find the price worth paying. Father, we do uh, just ask today that you might encourage us to be honest in our reflection of ourselves, that we might be able by your spirit to be transformed in the kinds of people you would have us be. And we pray that you might lead and guide us in such a way that we might encourage others to find that it's one who is the savior of the world. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.